there is a lot of confusing, conflicting teaching out there about the events surrounding the end days, the second coming of Jesus Christ, with there often being conflicting teachings even among Christian groups. And a lot of times, all of the confusion comes about when we latch on to things from that final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And instead of reading it humbly, studying it, wanting to understand what did God mean by revealing this? What would this have meant to the people that he first revealed it to? And then trying to discern what are its implications, its applications for us. When instead of reading it with the recognition that this is apocalyptic literature, it's not just a prediction of future events, but it's a total unveiling of an unseen realm, of a cosmic battle between good and evil, where it's helping us see things from a divine perspective, but it's doing so with rich, symbolic language. When we latch on to those symbols and read it as being something literal. When we look at these events as though this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen without truly appreciating what it is we're reading in Revelation, it causes a lot of problems. So much about how Revelation is communicated is communicated with symbolism. So much so that even numbers, when they're given in Revelation, are often used symbolically. A great, perhaps one of the best known examples of this occurs in Revelation chapter 7, where just after the Lamb has taken the scroll from God and is opening each of its seals, and as the first six of the seven seals are opened, different events are unfolding on the earth, there's pause. And in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the seal. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
when one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When we don't approach Revelation the right way, this passage can be the source of a lot of confusion. Sometimes people latch on to these 144,000 from the sons of Israel, and they craft whole theologies, whole sets of teachings about the end times, whole political and foreign policy objectives that they think are necessary before Jesus will come again in a way that works against what this chapter is actually saying. And it can be so easy for any of us to do that when we just drop into a passage of scripture and try to come away with what we think it means. A lot of times the result is confusing or discouraging or scary. But if instead we let this be what it's meant to be, a revelation of Jesus Christ, we'll see something different. If, like John did here, instead of trying to project our own meanings on it, we stop and ask, what is this saying? What does this mean? Like John asked, you know, tell me. We'll come away with a much different experience from this. Take those 144,000 from the sons of Israel. Right off the bat, that's an unusual, oddly specific number, isn't it? That's because it's 12 sets of 12,000. And that combination of 12 and 10 amplified to the thousands like that, that's a number that signifies this completeness. And the listing of the sons of Israel as they're given there is different from any other listing of the sons of Israel in Scripture. For instance, if you go back to the original birth order of the 12 sons of Jacob, or if you were to go back to the allotment of the physical promised land to their descendants, the nation of Israel, you'll not find a single listing where Judah is ever listed first. So why here? Why would the fourthborn of Jacob's sons be listed first? Well, do you know what tribe Jesus was from? The tribe of Judah. So whenever we're given a listing here that emphasizes Jesus' tribe and lists the others in a way that's very much unlike the ways that Israel was usually referred to, perhaps the point here isn't one about physical, political Israel. Maybe it's saying something about those from among that family of Abraham that God specifically selected and that purpose that was ultimately fulfilled when through them, Jesus came into the world. When you go through the list, there's other details that might stand out. For one thing, the tribes are listed in such a different order that actually the tribes that came from sons that were born to Jacob's slave women 
as opposed to his wives are listed. And they're not given that sort of elevation in the usual listings. But here, this seems to be elevating those lesser tribes. It's not a strict rendition any other way that was ever known. For instance, the tribe of Dan is left out entirely. I'll try not to take that personally. And normally, if Joseph is mentioned, his sons Ephraim and Manasseh would not be mentioned. Yet in this listing, we have both Manasseh and Joseph listed, but not Ephraim. And whenever Joseph would be left out for his two sons to be listed, Levi would also be left out, specifically when it came to allotting the promised land, because the Levites served all throughout the promised land. They didn't have an inheritance of land to call their own, yet this lists Levi there as well. So there's a hodgepodge going on here, which should cause us to pump the brake before thinking that this is describing something that needs to happen in the modern-day nation of Israel or describing something that should happen in the physical city of Jerusalem. There's a larger spiritual point. And it's unveiled for us not only by Judah being at the head, but by it immediately being followed then by that great multitude that couldn't be known from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And not leaving us confused about who they are, Revelation tells us. They are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They're Christians. They're those who have come to follow Jesus from whatever family or nation or language they originated. So in this way, Revelation 7, with these numbers, with this beautiful imagery, actually paints us a picture of God's purposes being fulfilled through the nation of Israel through bringing Jesus into the world. And then through that good news of the kingdom being extended to all people, much as the rest of the New Testament tells us that the gospel was preached to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When we see things from that lens, when we recognize that larger picture, we might have different weight that we place on why certain tribes are mentioned or certain ways that we interpret key details. But when we recognize this as being an image of God's people, the people that belong to him, ultimately being gathered together, being gathered together after a time of tribulation, after a time of suffering and hardship, but before things get a whole lot worse. What this picture actually gives us is not confusion, but it gives us it gives us something to do. Make sure our robes are washed in the blood of the Lord. Make sure we are seeking him, that we are serving him, that we are worshiping him day and night in preparation for that day. Make sure we are truly sealed and belong to him. But if we do that to give us assurance that as things unfold, no matter how hard things are now, no matter how crazy the world gets, we've already been given the victory because we belong. To Jesus. If we keep that picture in mind in symbols like Revelation 7 or in all sorts of prophecy or really any discussion of the events around the coming of the Son of Man, then instead of being confusing, instead of giving us a false sense of security that Jesus isn't about to come because there's something politically or there's something overseas that needs to happen first, it'll help us live each day ready for that Lamb who shed his blood to save us to come. 